0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Tarot and today on the podcast, Scott and I are catching up about a number of different topics, some things that Scott's been working on, um, books that he has out, and just some different ideas that he's got working. Um, So Scott, tell me what you'd like to talk about.
1: (laughs) You know, um... This has been a really funny season. Uh, I think I've gotten, in the last month, four of my books have been translated into Korean, and they all arrived. The New International Commentaries on James and Colossians. I don't think Philemon's been done, but maybe it has. And uh, a book I wrote long ago called The Story of the Christ. Um, Let's see. The... The book I'd edited with Nijay Gupta, uh, The State of New Testament Studies or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was another one that came in there. Uh, so at any rate, I know it's been four books and it's it's been really weird all of a sudden to have these. But um, this has been um, a busy year. The, the last six to nine months, because of what happened during COVID, is all of a sudden you know I wasn't traveling so that meant I was at home more and we couldn't go anywhere so that meant <laughs> I'm at home more and uh I was writing like crazy stuff that yeah. oh the other one is the five five things that you know a biblical scholar wants to see oh, that yeah. was translated into Korean as well wow. but it has the same clever color and everything on, and and number on the front um but this is for me this has been um an interesting year because all of these things that got stacked up at the publishers because of COVID are all of a sudden being released. Mm-hmm. And the revelation, uh, revelation for the rest of us has been um, a wonderful opportunity to talk. And I've already done, I think, 18 podcasts <laughs> just on the book. I've done 177 now on TOEF. Wow. So, so, uh, but, and my daughter said, well, you're going to do more on Revelation than Tove. I said, oh, no. It, it doesn't have the same kind of interest or scandal <laughs> connected to it that Tove does. So, well, I
0: think there are a lot of people that want to hear about Revelation.
1: Yeah, you know what's, what is uh, what? What is amazing to me is, um, you know, the experience I had at Northern when I told students I was going to teach on Revelation was sort of, oh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about Revelation. And I thought to myself, well, give me a chance, you know, and you were in the class, so mm-hmm. you you know, you know what's going on here. But the number of students who were actually, in a sense, I think you could actually say there's a level of spiritual abuse in the way the book of Revelation is taught. It's used as a, it manipulates people's um, amygdala hmm. to arise into fear. Yeah. And... You know, they, they look at the book of Revelation like a book that scared the daylights out of them when they were teenagers. Right. And it was such graphic information. I've always said this. Those dispensationalists created a scheme of interpretation that is so simple and clear that everybody mm-hmm. believes it. <laughs> I mean, they think, you know, there are people who are reading Revelation to see when the rapture is. Mm-hmm. Well, where did that come from? I mean, there's only one passage in the Bible that could possibly be about the rapture. And a lot of people today don't think it even is. Mm. I and mean, I'm talking about evangelical scholars that said, no, 1 Thessalonians 4 is not about a rapture. It's, you know, it's a metaphor there. So at any rate, my experience now on the podcast is the same thing, is that people have said, you know, I read your book. I couldn't believe that you would write on Revelation. Why would you even get involved in predicting Putin? You know, that sort of thing. (laughs) But what I've discovered is that they're reading it and saying, wow, this has given me a totally fresh view of the book of Revelation. And I think I agree with you. I think I, now, one guy I said, no, I, I don't really agree with you, but I want to hear your view. (laughs) And I thought, okay, I'm just going to try to speak to your audience and convince them not to believe what you're telling them. But um, (laughs) that's funny. Josh McDowell, one time I was with him at an event. It was apologetics. And I said, Josh, what's your advice for me? He said, don't, and he used this language, don't try to win your opponent. Win the audience. Mm. And that is so wise because... Then you're letting your opponent, let's just call him your opponent, set the agenda rather than you. And I experienced this with Jimmy Dunn one time when we were debating something he had written, and he would not respond to my questions. He would listen to my question, he'd turn the audience, and he just repeated what he had been saying. And I thought, (laughs) Jimmy, answer my questions. And he wouldn't do it. That's pretty sneaky. But when we left that day, they all believed him and not me. And I still think I'm right. Um, but on Revelation, um, I find that when you say that the book is not to be read as a prediction of who in the world today, Putin, Israel, Russia, the European Union, is doing what in the Bible, you know, the confederation of kings in Revelation and, you know, the, the dragon or, or especially the beast from the sea or the beast from the land. Um, instead of asking that question, which reads the book of Revelation as nothing but a bunch of predictions about the future rather than the first century, read the book in light of what it's trying to get the first century Christians in Western Asia Minor to do as followers of Jesus in that world. And suddenly it is transformed from a book that is predicting something, and we're trying to figure out what it's predicting, to something that has such resonance with us in our world that people are saying, hey, I really like this. Now, it's not a brand-new idea. Michael Gorman teaches a very similar thing, and he's got a wonderful book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. By the way, I frequently call this book Reading Revelation Backwards, and I'm not even aware of what I'm doing. (laughs) It's revelation for the rest of us, uh-huh. but not reading it backwards. But it is sort of backwards, because mm-hmm. I do advocate starting in chapter 17 and 18. Well, that was something that um, I don't know if you have some comments about that. Or not.
0: Well, I've heard um, even just in my little church group, we've had some people that knew about this book and wanted to do a study on it, because I think what you're identifying is people who've grown up in church um, have only heard it taught in a way that's been really damaging. And mm-hmm. so, I think there's a lot of interest of what does it have to do with discipleship? I think that's intriguing, um, trying to understand what what the book of Revelation can teach us about being dissident disciples yeah. um, is, is just a really intriguing idea. And having it sort of… Um, Taught in a redemptive way um, after yeah. experiencing it, sort of as a sledgehammer, is really attractive. <laughs> so,
1: you know, the other day, um, a pastor said to me, "It was, I think, it was on a podcast. You know what? What can what can I do uh, to help people become aware?" So, one of the Christian uh, life discipleship principles of revelation is to discern the presence of Babylon in the church or where yeah. you are, so that you see it. I said, this is dangerous politically. But I said, I would encourage you to have a Sunday school class or even a series of sermons. And one of the things you do is ask, what are some five things about the United States that you think are really good?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what are some what are five things about the United States that you think that are not so good, mm-hmm. you know, that you are actually critical of? I said, there are people in your church— who if you say anything good about the United States, they'll think you're a capitalist, uh, you know, exploiting people and militarism. And I said, there are other people, if you even entertain the idea of criticizing any president, oh, no, the president of their party, is that you are of the opposite party. Mm -hmm. And I said, right there is a lesson, is that America is not perfect. Yeah. All right. And therefore, we have to have, if we can learn to be discerners of what's good and what's bad, we suddenly are pulling ourselves away from a political party into the very thing John was teaching us in chapter 17 when he was talking about Babylon. Do you see exploitation? Do you see this anti-God stuff? Do you see this uh, murderous uh, stuff? Do you see this militarism? Do you see this... uh, constant interest in our image, you know, here's one, okay? I think it's pretty safe in most parts of the United States today to criticize Donald Trump, but his whole thing about make America great again is such a classic Roman thing of branding and of image maintenance, Mm. greatness. You know, greatness in the Bible is something about God, not about humans and not Mm. about nations, and that's a great example of babylon in our world and you know the we i can criticize the other party i don't have a political allegiance on a party and i don't i don't mind saying that i don't even vote i want to r- remain distant from that sort of culture war that american evangelicals have gotten into and it is not because i'm proud of not voting the point that i'm making is I want to reserve my voice to be one that encourages the good and discourages the bad rather than to be confused with someone who thinks everything Don, uh, Joe Biden d- does is good or everything Donald Trump does is good, or at least it can be excused. Hmm. That sort of that sort of posture, I think, gets us in trouble. Now, I'm doing these everyday Bible studies. Okay, so I have uh, a certain number. Of, I have... Two, two at the publisher, one on, uh, let's see, Romans, mm-hmm. and they have a picture of a stone road, so the Romans road, and I thought, oh, okay, we'll go with it. It's a pretty clever picture. And the pastoral epistles, so first and second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, mm-hmm. that's at the publisher, and those are uh, done, and they've been edited, and they're ready to move on. And i I just finished the Gospel of Mark. Oh, and that's one of my Be- favorites. I sent it to <laughs> Becky Monday, and she's yeah. going to start doing the questions. Nice. Guess which book is next? Revelation. Revelation.
0: You are taking another turn at it. <laughs>
1: that's right, but this time, well, I will start in chapter seventeen and eighteen to set the agenda. But um, this time, I'll get to go through the whole book and sort of explain mm. some of the stuff. This the book revelation for the rest of us is really almost like a hermeneutics book is teaches people how to read it and then I will read it in in the everyday Bible study so uh, but this month this month I'm I'm working on some things I'm doing a, um, a project with Tommy Phillips you know Tommy yeah yeah um, on the I am sayings in the Gospel of John
0: oh yeah, yeah. and
1: the theme of deconstruction so we're working Ooh. on Deconstruction in the Gospel of John, and uh, I Am Sayings. And uh, in the mornings right now, I'm taking my uh, my class on the Pharisees and turning it into a manuscript, and it's slow going right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dense, and I'm trying to turn it into a manuscript right now. It's all outlines. So, uh, But that one I can only work on. I can only work on these other projects every third month. It takes about two months to write one of the everyday Bible studies. Yeah. And then I have a month off where I can get to do something. Hey, And Chris and I, for our 50th anniversary, are going to go to Greece. So oh, you
0: are. How fun. Sept-
1: yes, we're going to go in September. So that's, that's wonderful. That's catching up. That's catching yep. up. Um, the other thing that I've been working on is Pharisees. And um, I just got a book, and I just finished reading it published by crossway mm-hmm. i'm going to try to hold myself and contain myself but i've never seen there's no book with more stereotypes of a pharisee than this book Yikes. i won't even tell you the name, but the title is <laughs> evangelical pharisees and it, oh. it, it uses the stereotype to criticize evangelicals which you know, criticizing evangelicals, we can, we can handle that uh, because we've earned it at times. But the stereotypes, and it's, it's like the author seems to know the soul and mind and heart of what a Pharisee is all about. And there's some texts that the author uses that make statements like this, but there's a, no sensitivity to exaggeration, to hyperbole. Mm. To rhetoric, to the relationship of Jesus to Pharisees in Galilee, to the Sadducees, to the you know, it's just sort of if you're not, uh, uh, if you're not, let's say he, this guy's very reformed. I met, I I would guess he's Presbyterian, but I, maybe Anglican. Um, it's almost like it, he proved that the Pharisees were not 16th century. Calvinists and that's a pretty easy proposition and it It really disappointed me because mm. he knows that people today who are historians are saying something quite different about Pharisees, and he just kind of dismisses it like mm. these people are trying to do something that's r- silly, and then he just gets into this topic so I've been, I've been, I read that book, but I've been trying to turn that, uh, that hundred, I think it's 120 page of single space notes, oh outline form that I gave to my DMIN class in January. I'm going to teach it in June again. And uh, I'm, I want to turn this into some kind of book and I, I'm going to start with different projects, but, um, and so that I can, I think I can contain each one by a month. Mm -hmm. So I'll work on one theme one month and, and then we'll see where I've gotten about, by December, I might have something that looks like a book and see, at least I'll know where I'm going.
0: Yeah, I always think it's interesting because people don't really understand your writing schedule. Um, So I think it's helpful just to kind of get a sense, uh, because I know, and I've told people, Scott's very disciplined. He has certain hours of the day that he checks email, and he has certain chunks of time that he dedicates to writing on certain topics throughout the day. And then reading, you spend certain times of the day reading. Um, But you're very disciplined about your writing process, which I think people don't In order to be a writer that's producing on a regular basis, you have to be disciplined. But it's incredibly difficult. And you're teaching at the same time. So I think,
1: yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm, uh, you could say, I mean, I I remember one time a colleague said, well, you're really disciplined. I think, well, I don't know what else to do with my life. I've been doing this (laughs) for so long. This way, I I don't feel like I have to get up and say, oh, I got to write this morning. I'd rather go play golf. Well sometimes I'd rather play golf, but I don't have time because I've got work to do uh, so but um, yeah I usually I usually write in the mornings till lunch and Chris mm-hmm. and I have lunch and then in the afternoons, I usually use that time for reading um, of stuff that I'm writing on or something. but I also will go back to the computer and type in the afternoon and write, if I just didn't quite finish what I needed to finish in the morning. Um, I, I, I think I probably told you in this class, but sometimes I stop saying things that I've said for so long. I finish every day of writing by writing the first sentence of the next day.
0: That's really smart.
1: So I don't have to wonder where I, what I'm going to do at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, even when I forget to do that or don't quite have time, I don't usually have writer's block to get things going. Um, I learned a lesson a long time and just start writing and throw it away later, but just, (laughs) just get it going. And then, but, but lately because of the revelation book and because of the Tove book, I've done so many podcasts that, you know, like some weeks I have one or two podcasts every day in the afternoon. And, uh, to, to wedge one in my mornings uh, is an act of betrayal on my part to my life. But every now and then, I mean, maybe once every four or five months, I'll do something like that in the morning. But mm. then the Northern situation has uh, really complicated our lives. Mm. Yeah. The professors, the administrators, students, it's the staff, it's – it just doesn't seem to stop. And, um, so that's, that's made my schedule. My life is not quite as easy, but I still do whatever I can to keep my morning fairly calm. But today Mm -hmm. I had about 15 different people texting me and I had three or four phone calls I had to make. And so today has been a difficult day, but yeah. Uh, that's that's but I've also you know I tell people I've been doing this for 40 years so um, when you've been studying the gospels for 40 years it's not like when I open up the gospel of mark that all of a sudden there's something i've there's a text that I've never read right you know, I've taught them all so well, at any rate, that's...
0: Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. I think it's helpful for people to understand your process, and I think that idea of reserving time, um, because the church benefits when we have people who invest that kind of time and effort into the research, into the writing, um, helping us understand who the Pharisees actually were, um, yeah. and, and I think being able to... Um, understand what they were doing in the New Testament times and their interactions with Jesus and how uh, the role they played in Jewish life in the first century, um, those are those are helpful things because I'm not going to be able to do that kind of research at that level to understand. I can't write a hundred single-space pages of notes on the Pharisees, but I think I will benefit because you've done that, and when you yeah. write about it, um, that will make me a better pastor um, to yeah, help teach You were teach talking people.
1: about writing. I always say there's two T's required for writing, tranquility and time. Mm. You know, if your life is a mess, and, you know, our lives get to be a mess.
0: Yeah.
1: It's hard to concentrate. You know, it's hard to sleep. It's it's hard to get your mind off those kinds of troubled situations. But it also takes time. So even if you're tranquil, if you can't carve out time, I mean... There are some people who think they can write, I'll write one hour on Thursdays and one hour on Saturdays. That's not writing. Uh, you know. I'm, and I'm not being critical of those who do that. It's that uh, over time, you want to be able to carve out, let's say, blocks of time uh, where, where you can go deep on something. And it, everything is right there in your brain because it, you've been thinking about it all morning. Those are the days that uh, where things can click, and uh, you know every, sometimes I'll write a paragraph and I think that took me forty years, <laughs> wow. but it was it took me only two minutes to write it because it was all <laughs> just bubbling up there. I um, think
0: there's a lot of similarities with sermon writing where oh, totally. um, you, you you have the deadline every Sunday, um, but it's it's how you reserve time for the research for the study, and then kind of let it percolate in the background. And I've learned I kind of have to have a discipline, Friday afternoon, um, Saturday, if I haven't had a lot of time to devote as much during the week, but where you just close it down, you're just done.
1: You know yeah.
0: what's done is done and and we'll see what comes out on Sunday mornings, but you have you've, tell me you
1: gotta, what your, tell me what your routine is for sermon prep I mean look yeah. it's a crazy life when you're church planning and you got a donut <laughs> shop to worry about and parking <laughs> uh, lot spaces so yes, what, all the like? things
0: so I think that i I really benefit from reading the kinds of things um, like you're doing in the everyday Bible study where you're reading um like an overview. So I'll read sometimes, um, N.T. Wright has a series, uh,
1: Bible for everyone or something. Yes. The Bible
0: for everyone. And I'll, I'll read a lot of times I'll start there just to get a, what's his general overview of the text. Um, then I'll go into commentaries, but you do want to spend a certain number of, um, days just reading over the text that you're going to preach on over and over and over again. um, so that you, and this is partially why I love the um, daily lectionary. I do the daily revised daily lectionary every day because you're reading um, supporting texts throughout the week, yep. and I yep. have found yep. that's really helpful for drawing out other themes and ideas. Um, and then you just kind of let it percolate. I'm by Thursday. I'm usually trying to think of an illustration um, that's going to help focus our attention on a particular theme in the text um, and I try to have it written by Thursday or Friday um, so then I can just set it aside, Yeah, you know, practice it a few times.
1: Do you begin on Monday?
0: Yeah, oh yeah.
1: Okay. Now I had a friend, this is no kidding, went to seminary with him and he was my neighbor for a while. Steve, he's American Baptist. Steve always had a sermon done A month in advance, he worked one month in advance, and then he had this. I know, and he would start telling me about this. He would write the sermon. He was always working on a sermon during the week that had nothing to do with that week. Yeah, and then he would, uh, like, two weeks in advance, he would read it aloud two or three times. He'd have it written one month in advance, and then. Th- the week of, he would read it like on a Monday and a Tuesday. He'd read it every day, and then he would read it aloud a couple times. So mm-hmm. by the time he got there, he was fully prepared for that sermon. That's impressive. I, now, here's what I do. Okay, I think <laughs> I think pastors can, um, this is just my view, and I've never been a pastor, so don't pay attention to me if you don't want. But I think Monday— can be a day where, let's say, the general drift of the sermon mm. can be set up rather than waiting till Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah. If you get it going, let's let's say you read the text several times, and you know they're coming. And maybe you're reading it; you've read it mm-hmm. five times already. You you say, okay, I think this sermon's going to go in this direction. Then you put it down, and then the next day, maybe a little bit. There was one guy I was looking on my shelves for this. He wrote a book about. Uh, preaching and how he had something every day mm-hmm. that he worked on the sermon. And I think it was by Friday. Now, because I've been doing this, I'm almost 70 years old. I'll turn 70 this year. Um, I write my sermons, if I'm preaching at our church, on Monday. Right, now, if I don't get to do it on Monday, I, I'm irritated with myself because <laughs> I think I need But I need that so it can percolate. And yeah. almost every day during the week, I adjust it and change it, and yep. sometimes on Thursday I'll say this is not going to work. I got to junk the whole thing and start all over, or at least <laughs> I can uh, save some of it. So uh, I'm—I was just interested in your in your routine on how you yeah. did that. So.
0: Yeah, that's so fun. It's so fun to think about, and it's it's challenging. But that idea that um, the responsibility to teach the Word of God well, I think, is is really important. And it takes time. It takes time and discipline.
1: In your preaching classes at Northern, what what did they say about uh, preaching, preparing routines?
0: Yeah. So I've read a few books on this. And I think the best case scenario is like your friend is working a month ahead. Like that's the ideal. Um, but for those of us that are Solo pastors and small churches. There's a million other things we're doing. So, I, I think, yeah, you want to get to that point. But how how are you front loading the research and the time in the Word, and also the importance of allowing the text to change you and to address you first, yeah. so that that you are encountering the Holy Spirit. So by the time that you get up to teach, you're modeling what how God has been working on you. Through the text. I, and I think that's important that as pastors, um, we are demonstrating how God has met us in the text
1: um, and sharing that with others. But I mean, in, in seminary class, did anybody? say, start on Monday or give you like a routine. Do your exegesis on Tuesday. Find your illustrations on Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> I've write definitely, the sermon on Thursday.
0: Yeah, I've definitely read books like that. where, it, And it even gets into like the outline, going from a manuscript to an outline, what day yeah, you should have the yeah. outline done, yeah, and then yeah, practicing yeah. it. Like how to preach without notes, I think was yeah. one of the books that I've read. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Very I, detailed. Um, I don't. I feel like I'm a terrible. I can't really give pastors this advice because I've never lived the life of a pastor. And good grief, you know, if I'm if I'm asked to to teach on Matthew, you know, I've been studying Matthew for forty years, uh, fifty years, and uh, I'm ready to go. You know, <laughs> I, I can. Uh, I've written my own exegesis of it. You know, my own type of stuff. So. I, can, I cheat that way, but I am always interested in how pastors do it. Mm. For me, one of the be- biggest lessons about preaching has been getting it done early so that it can, um, what, what do we say uh, with putting wine and waiting on it? It get, it's ferments. Uh-huh. Um, and then it gets ripe, and it gets to whatever the word is. It matures with age. You let it You let it go for the, you know, and yep. then it seems like when I do that, when I can get it done on a Monday or even the Friday before, if I can't get it out of my head, I'll start writing it then. And then during the week, little things come up, and I think, oh, that would be a perfect illustration. I cannot mm-hmm. tell you the number of times I've made adjustments it's it's almost every time. Yeah. I'd say 90% of the time for sure. So
0: Yeah. We live well. we live through the scripture, right?
1: That's right.
0: So Well, this has been a fun conversation, too. I didn't realize we were going to end it up in this territory of writing and preaching, but I think it's good stuff. And I hope it's been helpful for our listeners. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.